You can open your Bibles to Psalm 141. Psalm 141. I have a question for you. Do you live, this is uh, reflective of much of what we've already heard this morning through the songs and through the equip class. Do you live as one who is dependent upon God? If you do, what is the evidence that you live as one who is dependent upon God? As much as we'd like to say that we are continually aware of our utter dependence upon God, the reality is sometimes what we might call a functional atheism creeps in. What I mean by that is that our confession doesn't necessarily match our lifestyle. We say we believe in God, but practically speaking, functionally speaking, as we live, it appears as if we don't have much dependence upon Him at all. Now, as Christians, we understand that really such independence is an illusion. Jesus said in John 15, verse 5, I am the vine and you are the branches, and whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. We can't do anything of spiritual good to the glory of God apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we are wholly dependent upon Him. He's our only source of spiritual sustenance. That's what we kind of symbolize when we take part in the Lord's table, like last week. Like a vine feeds upon the branches for life, so we feed upon Christ who brings life to us. And so the proper Christian attitude is one which continually lives and abides in Christ. A continual attitude of submissive dependence upon Him. A daily awareness of our ever-present need for Jesus. And so our proposition this morning, a perpetual attitude of absolute dependence upon God ought to be the abiding attitude of the believer. We should confess daily our inability and our need for God. Unfortunately, oftentimes we fail at this. Our temptation, as borne out by my experience and your experience, is to continually drift towards independence. Taking life in our own hands and having an attitude that says we can do this on our own. Relegating God to just that potential help when trouble comes. Running to God when we're in distress instead of depending upon Him daily. For this reason, God sometimes uses circumstances in our lives to remind us of our dependence upon Him. We see this displayed throughout the Bible and especially throughout the book of Psalms. And we're going to read Psalm 141. Some of the greatest expressions of love and devotion and dependence and worship are recorded through the psalmists and their experiences. Psalm 141 is no different. This is a psalm of David. O Lord, I call upon you, hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you. Did you catch that in the song we just sung? Talking about our praise, may our praise be incense before you. Same idea. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you, and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Do not let my heart incline to any evil to busy myself with wicked deeds in company with men who work iniquity, and let me not eat of their delicacies. Let a righteous man strike me, it is kindness. Let him rebuke me, it is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. Yet my prayer is continually against their evil deeds. When their judges are thrown over the cliff, then they shall hear my words, for they are pleasant. As As when one plows and breaks up the earth, so shall our bones be scattered at the mouth of Sheol, 
But my eyes are toward you, O God, my Lord. In you I seek refuge. Leave me not defenseless. Keep me from the trap that they have laid for me and from the snares of evildoers. Let the wicked fall into their own nets while I pass by safely. Here David finds himself in some sort of distress at the distress of wicked or evil men. Don't have really any other information about the circumstances uh, surrounding this psalm of lament. But what I want to focus on this morning is simply David's attitude as he approaches God in the midst of distress. As he faces a difficult situation, he realizes his urgent need for God. And as we're going to see, this isn't just some sudden realization, but he has an attitude, apparently, uh, of continually abiding under the watch care of the Lord. And so as difficult as his situation is, again, he realizes that he needs God's intervention in his life, and he immediately uh, becomes conscious of his own spiritual weaknesses. And so our prayer this morning is that we can all come to that same realization. We can all maintain that same attitude, not just in trying times, but all the time. May we daily live our lives with an ever present awareness of our absolute dependence upon God. And so let's begin through the psalm. First of all, we see David's desperate call upon God in verse 1. O Lord, I call upon you. Hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. That's a desperate plea. He's facing some major trial, which leads him to come to God with a desperate call for help. David needs urgent help, and he does not hesitate in his desperation to let that be known to God. He pours out his heart to God. He calls out to God. And some of you this morning, we don't know. We come here, and we say, good morning. How how you doing? Oh, fine. And behind that fine sometimes are all sorts of struggles, emotional struggles and relational struggles and financial struggles and so on. And so some of you may be dealing with some sort of distress this morning that you haven't let be known to others. Well, feel the freedom to come to the Lord, to call upon him in desperation. Psalm 69, 17, David says, Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Have you ever cried out to the Lord in that way? Lord, I need you. Please hear me. And what is that? That's a wonderful, faith-filled expression towards the Lord that I know that you love me. I know uh, that you hear me. And so, Lord, please act on my behalf. And so David calls upon God. I call upon you. And by saying I call upon you, he's saying there's a whole lot of things I'm not calling upon. It may seem like an unnecessary statement, especially for the Christian, but the fact is many of us have developed patterns of behavior which see us run to other sources of help, other sources of help or comfort or deliverance in times of trouble or need. Many of us have layers of help or comfort that we exhaust before we ever come to God, making God the refuge of last resort, treating Him, again, as a last resort instead of an abiding refuge. There's nothing like trouble to expose where our real dependence lies. So, where do you run when you have financial trouble? Where do you run when you have relational trouble? Where do you run when you have physical trouble? Where do you run when you have emotional trouble? What or who is your go-to in times of trouble? Have you made the short-sighted and fleshly mistake of believing that the solution to your problems are only earthly? Have you forgotten that God is our refuge and strength and a very present help in times of trouble? 
Now, we should be quick to say that this should not simply be our attitude in times of trouble, but this should be our attitude as we face the daily stresses of life. As I've said multiple times, uh, likely you and I are not handling the stresses of life as well as we'd like to think we are. Because there are plenty of things in your life and my life that we have erected as the source of comfort and coping, which are unhealthy. And so there may be things that you have in your life that are propping you up through the stresses and the disappointments and the difficulties of life, which are not helpful. And so, yes, you seem to be getting through life just fine, uh, but maybe you're doing it in an unhealthy or detrimental way. We can be guilty, maybe to a lesser degree, of the sins of Israel, as we're going to see in Jeremiah in a few weeks in the equip class, or actually, as we already saw some weeks ago in Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah says to Israel, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. Now, this is something incredible, something you won't believe. What is it? For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. You have a fountain of living water that you can go to at any time and be re- Plenished and sustained, but instead, what has happened, the back has been turned to the living water, and I'm just going to dig out my own hole, fill it with water. But it says it's not even a good cistern. It's one that's broken and can't even hold any water. A broken cistern, so all the impurities and so on creep into the water, and then you're losing water anyway. And say, well, I don't need the fountain of living water. I have my own water supply. Well, yeah, but your water supply stinks. It's contaminated and is leaking. We have broken cisterns. Those are those coping mechanisms. Those are those layers of support that we seem to exhaust before we ever think about coming to the Lord. For some of us, that broken cistern is a dependence upon our own ability to handle life. We can produce successful relationships without God's help. If you're dating, trust God, right? If you're married, trust God. We can parent without God's power. Good luck, (laughs) We can provide for ourselves without God's enablement. We can protect ourselves from sin without God's restraining hand. We can do it. Those are just broken cisterns. Make no mistake, God is the one to be called upon. We are utterly dependent upon Him. And He's to be called upon in verse 1. That's a sense of urgent need. I'm crying out to you, God. Please hurry. Hear my cry. You and I need a blast of some of that same awareness of our desperate need. Our prayer lives need to be flavored with a sense of utter dependence upon God for all things. And so, uh, maybe some of us need to confess our drift towards independence and admit our desperate need for God, that daily need. This is not the call of a stranger only calling upon God in times of need, but as we're going to see, David has a deep knowledge of who God is. And so he's maintained that relationship throughout. So we see David's desperate call upon God. Next of all, we see David's devotion to acceptable worship. Now, we've already stated that we can be guilty of living a life as if we are independent of God, only confessing that dependence when life spirals out of control. Uh, We have to make a further admission. Some can also be guilty when they come to God in the midst of trouble of only coming to him with a shallow, temporary contrition. 
as we learned in the equip class again, uh, the Jews, as Jeremiah is pronouncing judgment upon them, God says, uh, don't even pray. Don't pray for them. If they come to me with sacrifices, I won't accept it. If they pray to me, I won't hear it. And we say, well, why? Well, because he understands the pathology here. When times get tough, we run to God, and as soon as things are okay, then we just go right back to our old lifestyle, and he knew that was the attitude. Their lips were close, but the heart was far from me. That wasn't the case with David. This is not a shallow and temporary contrition which lasts only as long as his trouble. These are those who call out to God, not with a genuine sense of worship, but only seeking deliverance. They rush into the throne room of God, spouting their need without any care for acceptable worship. Look at verse 2. Look at David's attitude. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you. And like I said, we already sung that this morning. I hope you caught it and I hope you meant it. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you in the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. And so along with his utter dependence upon God, he has a devotion to acceptable worship. He invokes the language of the temple. And the sacrificial system, his desire is that God would find his prayer pleasing, acceptable, like the offering of incense in the holy place. As the smoke of the incense rose up, it was a pleasing aroma to God. Let my prayer be acceptable to you. The incense was prepared according to a very strict recipe, only to be used uh, for this purpose. His preparation and its offering required obedience, and it required worship. The Lord said to Moses in Exodus 30, And the incense that you shall make according to its composition, you shall not make for yourselves. It shall be for you holy to the Lord. David says, Lord, please, as even in my distress, as I pour out my heart and I call out to you for help, let this be acceptable to you. And this displayed a knowledge of God. David understood what was acceptable to the Lord and what was not. David understood what was pleasing to him and what was not, even in the midst of his distress. And so again, I say, this is not a stranger uh, who hasn't prayed and who knows how long, but finds themselves distressed and all of a sudden runs to the Lord. This is a man who understood the Lord, who even understood the law and understood what was pleasing to him. And so he comes with this contrite attitude and an attitude of devotion. He wanted even his cry of help to be acceptable to the Lord. So, He's not a man who lived a life distant from God, running to him only for help in the time of need, but he was faithful, desired to be found acceptable to him. He punctuates this in verse 2 again. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. As the evening sacrifice. You can read about that in Exodus 29. We won't do it for the sense of, uh, for the sake of time. But in Exodus 29, 41... It says, the other lamb, that lamb to be offered at twilight, you shall offer it with a grain offering and its drink offering, as in the morning, for a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. The idea, again, the smell of that burnt offering wafting up into the nostrils of the Lord and him being satisfied. That's the idea. The picture is that of an aroma of sacrifice rising, not because the lamb itself Uh, was pleasing, but because the offering of the lamb was an act of faith-filled worship, the Lord is pleased with his people when they come and offer acceptable worship. So David understood the spiritual reality behind the law. He knew it wasn't just the act of, of offering a lamb, but he knew that that could be compared to prayer. 
Lord, just as the rising incense and the rising aroma of the evening sacrifice is accepted by you, so let my prayer be accepted by you. Just as you are pleased and satisfied by these, please be pleased and satisfied by the worship of my heart. That's his attitude. Now, we're not Jews this morning. And so maybe we don't say, Lord, let my prayer be accepted to you as evening sacrifice. We might not use that language. However, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2 says, Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You know what's ultimately pleasing and satisfying to the Lord? The sacrifice of his son. When we come to the Lord in prayer as Christians, what do we do? We come in Jesus' name. And as we approach the Lord in the name of Christ, uh, all of our prayers and all of our worship now, what is the aroma of Christ in the nostrils of the Lord? Jesus Christ, the perfect sacrifice, fully accepted by God. His substitutionary death upon the cross is seen as a fragrant offering to the Lord, pleasing, satisfying, so that uh, Paul could say, In 2 Corinthians 2.15, we are the aroma of Christ to God. As we walk according to the Spirit, that acceptable worship, what? Is accepted by the Lord because it is the pleasing aroma of Christ in us. It's as if the obedient and worship-filled lives of God's people emit a pleasing aroma as a fragrant offering to God. Our desire should be a continual devotion to such an obedience, a worship-filled life. So that when we approach God in prayer, the cry of our hearts is received by him as an acceptable sacrifice infused with the aroma of Christ. Hebrews 12.28 says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. David's distress did not cause him to become myopic. He, He didn't become... He didn't have tunnel vision, only looking at his problems. He did not become self-centered. He was fully devoted to acceptable worship, even as he came to God with desperate need. So too, you and I should live with a consistent worship and obedience, so that when times of troubles arise, our cries for deliverance spring forth from a heart which is devoted to acceptable worship. His desperate call upon God, his devotion to acceptable worship. Next of all, we see his dependence upon God's restraining hand. His dependence upon God's restraining hand. David wants his life, his heart to be accepted before the Lord, acceptable before the Lord. Well, what's necessary in part if that were to be the case? Because we all confess that we are sinners at heart right? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. I mean, that's us. Prone to wander, though we're saved, though the Spirit's in us, uh, we are still prone to wander. So, which means that we are dependent, right? We are still dependent upon the Lord as believers, absolutely for godliness. So look at David as he expresses to the Lord his need for God's restraining hand so that his heart can remain pure and his prayer can be uh, acceptable before him. Verse 3. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. The first thing David focuses upon is his own speech. You ever feel like you need somebody guarding your mouth? You ever feel like you need somebody, uh, some type of filter there? 
David understood that essential to an obedient, worship-filled life, which is acceptable before the Lord, is a pattern of acceptable speech. Is this, does this carry over into the New Testament? Yes. James 1.26, if anyone thinks that he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. That one who claims to be a follower of Christ, but their lips, their speech doesn't seem to reflect it, that casts doubt upon the genuineness of that one's faith. But what David understood further is that if he were to live with a pattern of acceptable speech and bridle his own tongue, he would have to be absolutely dependent upon God. And so God, guard Guard my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. He's saying, uh, I know how unruly and how volatile the human tongue can be. And so, Lord, I need your protection. Like a guard who's going to keep watch over a prisoner, the Lord is keeping watch over our speech. That's the idea. Don't allow me to say things I shouldn't say. Our words are so powerful, so potentially dangerous and damaging that we actually need God's restraining hand to bridle our tongue. That's amazing. What comes out of our lips? What comes out of our lips when we are distressed? What comes out of our mouths when we are disappointed? What comes out of our mouth when we are discouraged? I mean, because in a lot of ways, I mean, Jesus said it, that out of the heart proceeds uh, the words of our mouth. And so if that's the case, then uh, I think that when we are down and discouraged and distressed and so on, that may be just a window into the heart, right, through the speech. James chapter 3, verse 6 says, The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Tell us what you really think, James, right? For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil, full of deadly poison. By the way, if you teach or preach, what a sober warning for those who... Uh, have a ministry based upon words in the things that we say, right? Well, what else does the Bible say about our words? Scripture has a lot to say because sound, pure, fitting, encouraging, grace-filled words are a hallmark of genuine spiritual people. As a sample, the Bible says in Proverbs twelve eighteen, there's one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. There are those who cut up, tear apart, wound others through their words, whereas the wise actually heal. Proverbs 15.1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but harsh words stir up anger. If you work in customer service, that's a great verse for you, okay? Proverbs 10.19 simply tells us not to talk a lot. When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. I mean, think about all the turmoil that our words can bring. Sometimes it's better just not to say anything. Proverbs 15, 28 says, Think before you speak. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked just pours out evil things. And so that man who's slow, or the man or woman who's slow to respond, why? Because he's pondering what to say. The wicked, on the other hand, just vomit out whatever they think. On the other hand, our words have the potential to give grace, to build others up, to spread love, to communicate truth, to share wisdom. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15 says, speak the truth in love. Ephesians 4, 29 says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, 
but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Ephesians 5.4, let there be no filthiness nor foolish uh, talk nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Colossians 4.6, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. With the same tongue, we can lie, we can flatter, we can gossip, we can slander, we can murmur, we can divulge secrets, we can utter obscenities, or we can speak gracious, loving, fitting, timely, upbuilding, truth-filled words of wisdom for the glory of God and for the good of others. So great is the disparity between the good and evil that we utter with our lips that what? We can say, Lord, I just need a guard there. I need you to, I need you to help watch what I say. We're absolutely dependent upon him for proper speech. Does this mean that, oh, I don't have to discipline my own tongue? No, this is very interesting because this is David in Psalm 141. But then David also in Psalm 39 says this. He says, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. He's saying, Lord, on one hand, you guard, you watch. On the other hand, I will guard and I will watch. Why? Because it's the Lord's protection in his restraining hand that enables us to watch what we say. And notice that David says in Psalm 39, I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. It matters how we speak among those who are unbelievers. So, as we acknowledge our utter dependence upon God to live a life acceptable to him, we also recognize our own responsibility. In all of this, we recognize that our appropriate God-honoring speech is essential because our words are the products of our hearts. I've already alluded to it, but Luke 6, Jesus says, The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces uh, of his evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. And so the mouth is simply the outlet for whatever exists within our hearts. So we see David's Dependence upon God for godly speech. We see his dependence upon God for his godly desires. Verse 4, do not let my heart incline to any evil. If my words are going to be protected, my heart needs to be protected. And so do not uh, let my heart incline to any evil. Don't let it happen. That reminds me of Matthew 6.13, the Lord's Prayer. Jesus said that we ought to pray this way, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Lord, just as you're going to guard my lips, please guard the desires of my heart. Lord, I want to live a life acceptable to you. Just as you're pleased with the offering of incense or the evening sacrifice, I want you to be pleased with my life. So guard my speech, which means, Lord, I need you to guard my heart. This attitude requires a biblical understanding of the nature of man, a sober assessment of our own nature. Jeremiah 17.9, you've heard it many times. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. Now, as Christians, through the new covenant, we've been given what? New hearts, right? And so we have new hearts, yes, but there's still a tendency, like a car that's out of alignment, to veer towards uh, our old, way, old ways of living. And so we still need such protection. So please, Lord, help me at the very point of my desire. Not just my actions, like the legalist, but help me at the very point of my desire. Don't allow that seed to germinate in me that leads me to sin. Don't allow the desire to be conceived. So, Lord, restrain. Have you ever thought about how dependent you are upon God's restraining hand? Like the Lord said to Abimelech after not sinning against Sarah, he says, I kept you from doing that. 
You and I are dependent upon the Lord, praying to him, Lord, please keep me from sin. I know my own nature. Do you know your own nature? Have you ever thought about who you are without the Holy Spirit? I mean, you live for many years as you without the Holy Spirit. Be reminded of who you are without God's restraining hand and pray with utter dependence, Lord, keep me from myself. Protect me from myself. Have you prayed that way for other people? Lord, protect them from sin and protect them from themselves. I know I've prayed that way. Protect me from evil desires. Don't let me drawn away into wicked wants. Why? Because desire leads to action. James chapter 1, verse 14 says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Temptation is only tempting because first there is desire in our hearts. The temptation is an opportunity for us to indulge in those desires. And so, Lord, help me at the point of desire. So, we understand the promise of the new covenant. We have a new heart, sure. But you know what the Lord has done? Is He uses means in our life, doesn't He? And so we have a new heart granted to us by the Holy Spirit. But this life is a matter of living out practically that new life, understanding we're not going to be fully glorified till the end. And so the Lord gives us means uh, to effectuate that new heart or to live in that new heart. And so as we pray, we also give ourselves with discipline to the means of grace so we can practically live out what God has wrought spiritually through through the new covenant. Proverbs 4.23 reminds us to keep your heart. Just as God guards, so we are to guard. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. And so David understood. He's wholly dependent upon the Lord. Lord, guard my speech. Guard my desires. And then verse, we'll just touch on this. He also depended upon God for godly actions in verse 4. Do not let my heart incline to any evil. Why? Because out of the heart flows all the springs of life. And then he says, to busy myself with wicked deeds. Those deeds are going to come when our heart desires are not right. And he says, in company with men who work iniquity. And there we see that David is not only dependent upon God for godly speech and godly desires and godly actions, but also godly associations. Lord, help me. I don't want to busy myself with wicked deeds in company with men who work iniquity. And let me not eat of their delicacies. It's interesting this morning, if you're here in Equip class and you hear, heard the songs and so on, there's, there, there has been a running theme throughout uh, this morning that the Lord has, has uh, put together, which is a blessing. Because in my notes next is Psalm 73, which we talked about in the Equip class. David's prayer is, Lord, help me not to be in company with men who work iniquity and let me not eat of their delicacies. The implication being that the wicked that he's looking at are pretty prosperous. Not only that, but the wicked all around him are indulging in some things that really appeal to David. There's something in David that says, I would like to do that. I would like to take part in that. David's aware of his own nature. And uh, so too, there are, what, things all around us in this culture. We look at things that others can do that we cannot do. Why? Because as believers, we exercise delayed gratification and self-denial. Why? Because we have an eternal perspective. 
I mean, if there was no resurrection, if there was no eternity, then who cares? Let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. But that's not the case. And so we look at the world and say, they're having a grand old time. They've got their delicacies. They're indulging the flesh. And yet we pray to the Lord and say, Lord, help me not to uh, uh, do wicked deeds in their company. Uh, Help me not to desire or to take part in the delicacies. We won't read it, but Psalm 73 drills down on that quite a bit. So this is not to deny that much of what the world offers is attractive and alluring. However, we understand that what the Lord gives us through the Lord Jesus Christ, as we walk according to the Spirit, is far better. Verse 4 says, Do not let my heart incline to any evil, to busy myself with wicked deeds, in company with men who work iniquity, and let me not eat their delicacies. And there David is expressing that real danger to succumb to the seduction of the world, and uh, instead we depend upon God to guard our hearts. So we see his desperate call upon God, his devotion to acceptable worship, his dependence upon God's restraining hand, depending upon God to restrain his speech, to restrain his desires, to restrain his actions, and to restrain his associations. And then, lastly, I think, we see David's desire for godly rebuke. Look in verse 5. David says, Let a righteous man strike me, it is a kindness. Let him rebuke me, it is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it, yet my prayer is continually against their evil deeds. David, in his distress, was not only submissive to God's divine hand in shaping him into an acceptable worshiper, but he was submissive to God's earthly means of accomplishing it. So how is the Lord going to work in David's life to help shape him so that he can be an acceptable worshiper? Well, through his means of grace. Well, you know, some of the means of grace that God uses in your life and my life are other believers, right? And so David says, let a righteous man strike me, it's a kindness. Lord, if you would, use others around me who are godly to correct me. It's a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It's oil for my head. It's soothing. It's healing. I need this. This is a mark of tremendous wisdom on David's part. The Bible indicates that those who give heed to correction or rebuke are wise and intelligent. On the other hand, those who refuse it do themselves a great disservice. Proverbs chapter 15. The ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. Whoever ignores instruction despises himself, but he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. The Lord's wisdom and the design for his covenant community is just that community. Why? Because we can't do the Christian life on our own. And so the Lord gives us the church. And so there's men and women all around us. And it's not necessarily a, you know what, there's so much more godly than I am. May be the case. But everybody has different perspectives. Everybody's at a different stage of life. And so there are people all around you who can offer insight and perspective into your life and my life and correct where necessary. Or even, David says, rebuke me. He even says, strike me. Now, don't do that. But the idea is, Lord, I need those around me to correct me when I go astray. I mean, what humility. Contrary to what some might think, wisdom and intelligence is not proven by the ability to just do life on my own. That's not it. Instead, wisdom and intelligence are seen in our ability to humble ourselves and to receive instruction. 
correction, even rebuke from godly influences in our life. And again, that's God's design in the church. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. So how do we prevent that from happening? Verse 13, But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So, community, uh, how do we help each other and ensure that none among us are hardened by the deceitfulness of of sin? Exhort one another. Every day, as long as it's called today. So at Calvary Baptist Church, we emphasize meaningful membership. We have relationships with one another. We get to know one another. Yeah, and you know, we actually invite this type of action from others into our lives and are willing to offer it to others as well. Now, is that enjoyable? Not always. In fact, what's likely to happen when somebody approaches you and confronts you and says, now listen, I know your heart's desire is to be acceptable before the Lord, and I'm looking at your life, I'm looking at this pattern, I'm looking at this new habit you've developed, and this isn't healthy. Our first reaction is to dig in our heels and then to attack, right? Well, you, okay, it's not pleasant, but Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11 says, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness, to those who have been trained by it. So the reason for David's prayer to God here is that the natural inclination of his heart would be to reject such correction. And so, Lord, help me to receive that when it happens. Let a righteous man strike me, it is a kindness. Let him rebuke me, it is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. Help me to take it and to take it gracefully so that what? The fruit will be righteousness. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 8 says, Do not reprove a scoffer, or he'll hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Wisdom, intelligence, and maturity submits to godly correction. Why? Because such correction is a necessary means of God, which he has chosen to use to form us into acceptable worshipers. And so we pray, Lord, when necessary, allow others to correct me. When I'm blind, send somebody who has eyes to see, right? Protect me from my natural response, which will be be to refuse it. Let me count it as a kindness. Let me receive it as something which brings help and healing. Help me to so value the ultimate end of being like Christ that I can count such an unpleasant experience as an ultimate good. That's the idea. Well, let's just briefly look at verses 6 through 10. I won't say much here. Verses 6 and 7 admittedly, are a bit obscure. Commentators will affirm that as well. But it says, When their judges are thrown over the cliff, then they shall hear my words, for they are pleasant. What is he saying? I think we could say that he's giving deference to God's justice here. He's giving deference to God's justice. Though there are wicked men all around me who are causing my distress, the day is going to come where the judges will be thrown off the cliff, then they're going to hear my words. The day is going to come when, Lord, you are going to have your day of justice, and then they will realize the error of their ways. Then they will see it with clarity when your judgment comes. I think that's what's happening here. And so he says he's giving deference to God's justice. And that's a word for us as well, because there's wickedness all around us. And our desire, sometimes that's when our words get out of hand, right? Uh, that's, that's when we're willing to let it rip sometimes when we call out the wickedness of the culture. Uh, but David is saying, Lord, I'm giving deference to your justice. The day is going to come when all things will be set aright. 
verse 7, as one plows and breaks up the earth, so shall our bones be scattered at the mouth of Sheol. There's various interpretations for this verse, and I'm just going to take the easy way out and say, you study that on your own. So, verse 8, but my eyes are towards you, O God, my Lord. If you seek uh, in you, I seek refuge. Leave me not defenseless. And so on one hand, David is looking at the culture and saying, Lord, your judgment will come. When that comes, things will be all set aright. And they will see the error of their ways, not coming to genuine repentance, but they'll realize that the things that I was saying were right. But that's not where he's fixating. He's not fixating upon the culture. He's not fixating upon their coming judgment. Instead, but my eyes are towards you, O God, my Lord. In you I seek refuge. Leave me not defenseless. Defend me. Protect me. Let them reap what they have sown while I simply keep my eyes upon you. So in conclusion, David found himself in great distress. And that stress caused him to recognize his absolute dependence upon God. He's driven to call upon God with desperate dependence. This was not, however, the cry of a fair-weather worshiper who only approaches God in times of need. No, David comes with devotion. He comes with acceptable worship. As he cries out, he desires that even the prayer can be received by God as a pleasing sacrifice. David understood that if he were to be able to offer such acceptable worship, such acceptable sacrifice, then he was absolutely dependent upon God to shape his life. He would need God to guard his lips. He would need God to restrain his heart. He would need God to keep him tender, keep him humble, keep him submissive to whatever correction God would bring into his life, even at the hands of other godly believers. This is an awesome example for us to follow. In times of distress, in times of ease, or in times of ease, our daily prayer ought to be one of absolute dependence upon God. For the New Testament believer, we understand that this dependence looks like continually abiding in Jesus. Again, John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So we pray, Lord, please make my life as an acceptable sacrifice to you. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God which is your spiritual worship, only possible because Jesus Christ has first given himself as the ultimately acceptable sacrifice on our behalf. So we pray, guard my lips, restrain my heart, keep me tender, keep me humble, keep me submissive to correction. Continue my whole life long to mold and shape me according to your good pleasure. And we know ultimately that is being molded and shaped into the image of Christ himself. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we confess this morning that we are absolutely dependent upon you. Show us areas of our lives where we have uh, erected our own leaky cisterns. There are, whether it be our money, whether it be our own efforts, whether it be our own achievements, uh, whatever it may be, whether it be sin, many of us have found patterns or habits of coping with the distresses and discouragements of this life in an unhealthy way. Help us instead to recognize our absolute dependence upon you and to deal with the difficulties of life by crying out to you. Help us also to live a life of continual dependence upon you so that when distresses come, we're not a fair-weather worshiper just running to you, 
uh, in the times of trouble and then going back to our ways when the trouble passes. Instead, help us to abide. Help us to abide in Christ. And Lord, we acknowledge this morning that uh, though David had wonderful privileges, we have far more because we have Jesus. And so, Lord, help us uh, to abide in him. We understand that ultimately we are acceptable to you because he is acceptable to you and we are in him. So help us to walk uh, in Christ. Help us to walk in the Spirit. We understand that... uh, uh, The righteous requirement of your law is is fulfilled as we walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So help us to stay in the Spirit. Help us to walk in accord with the Spirit. Help us to use your means, be in your word, to be prayerful, to have wonderful fellowship with other believers, to invite the correction of others, and so on. Help us to not neglect the uh, community of worship uh, here. And help us just to use your means so that we can maintain a lifestyle which is acceptable to you. And then, Lord, we just pray for any this morning uh, who are just right there in the thick of distress or discouragement. Remind them that you are that ever-present help in the time of need. You are that refuge. Help them to rest and rely upon you, to lean hard on you in the midst of this trouble. And uh, I pray that you be faithful, uh, that you will um, protect, that you'll protect their hearts, that you'll protect their... uh, um, attitudes, that you'll keep them dependent, keep them worshipful, help them not to fall into sinful patterns uh, as a result of the trouble they're facing, but uh, support them, encourage them, and lead them to Jesus. And then lastly, we just pray for any who are not yet Christians, pray that they'd also see their need for Christ, understanding that he is the one who gave himself as the acceptable sacrifice, and it's through him and him alone that we can come to you. So Impart that in the hearts of those who are here this morning. Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you're faithful. We thank you that you're ever-present. And help us uh, to live in utter dependence upon you. We thank you for all of this in the name of your Son. Amen.